Assalamu alaikum rahmatullahi wabarakatuh and welcome back to another session of the Doctor's Lab with Dr. Khalid Green and myself, Dr. Abdul Haq Baker. First and foremost, apologies for the slight delay. There's some technical problems at my end, but we're here live and kicking, as they say. Mashallah, Tarakallah. How are you doing, Dr. Khalid? Walaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alhamdulillah, I'm doing fine. And alhamdulillah, it's always a pleasure. I eagerly await engaging in the doctor's lab. It's always a pleasure to be, to be back. So alhamdulillah. Yeah. Alhamdulillah. Likewise, and today we've been um, anticipating this particular subject for a few weeks now. Mm. And um, the time, I, I couldn't attend uh, last fortnight. I was uh, finishing a project, as you know. Um, alhamdulillah, 11 month project, and that was concluded. I had to travel for that. But today, contextualizing knowledge to mm. what extent must we follow the scholars today? And the reason why I felt this was an appropriate subject to discuss is because I think of a lack of knowledge, ignorance of some with regards to the position of the scholars on the one hand, and their worth and their import and their weight in Islam. And then on the other side, the over-reliance, the exuberance, the excessive referencing of scholars to the extent of blind following, as we've seen with the Madahib, but we've also seen in a contemporary age within those of us who um, adhere to Salafia, Salafism, a similar, I would say, if not worse, referencing um, than the Madahib. But we're getting to that, Khalid, but I want yeah. to set the premise. Wa alaykum salam to everyone um, here, Kira, all of you, Malahaps, good to see you, sisters, Nilofa. One of the things I want to look at from a perspective as well, from those who are not necessarily adhering we're fine kira jazakallah here um not ad, uh, adhering to orthodoxy as such and the more liberal or in inverted commas progressive persuasion and mm. i want to read from uh, a book that i've referenced before Khalid, just to throw this into the mix and it needs to be addressed because some subscribe to some of the observations or narratives in this particular um uh, book islam authoritarianism and underdevelopment Mm. And under a section called Secularists and Islamic Actors, it mentions, quote, despite their century-long struggles against each other, secularists and Islamic actors have both contributed to the enduring marginalization of intellectuals and the bourgeoisie in their societies. Then they give the author gives a division here, mm. a classification. There are three main explanations for the secularist contribution. First, most 20th century secularist leaders in such cases as Turkey, Iran, Egypt, Egypt, sorry, Iraq, Syria, Algeria, mentions a few more, were former military officers. By training and socialization, they were unlikely to truly appreciate the importance of intellectuals and the bourgeoisie for the political and economic development of their countries. They go on to discuss the secular, secularist leaders and we're not that's not going to necessarily be our focus here i think we need to look more at the topic of this um sub conversation regarding scholars mm. and what he says here is quite interesting um where they mention 
Though they were founded by secularist leaders, many modern states in the Muslim world experienced Islamization of public life as a result of policy failures of the secularists and the general conservatism of Muslim societies. Islamization has elevated the status of three groups of Islamic actors who have shared negative attitudes towards intellectuals and the bourgeoisie. Listen now, one group is the ulama, who are trained in madrasas of or more modernized equivalents, such as Turkey's Department of Theologies, in Islamic disciplines, including jurisprudence, the Hadith and Quran exegesis. Another group is the Islamists, who engage in electoral or other types of politics through political parties and movements. The third group is the Sufi sheikhs, who are mystical and social leaders of Sufi orders, tariqas. So that's one perspective, Khalid. I'm, talk I'm coming at this from a really broad um, paradigm, mm -hmm. and we're going to bring it more into an orthodox, orthodox perspective paradigm upon which we can elucidate, as I said from the introduction, mm the worth of the scholars, the ulama, and the value we place upon them. And then those other extremes that are either over-exuberant or castigating and denigrating of the ulama. So sticking with this one at the moment now, where you're seeing they're talking about the bourgeoisie, the, the ulama, and, and the position with regards to secularism. And, and this, this narrative here is almost disparaging the ulama in that respect. And that's something you and I would not um, subscribe to or agree with. So I'll, I'll hand over to you in that part because we've spoken about progressives and everything before. This is a sort of narrative that many of them may subscribe to. Would you agree? That, that the progressives prescribe to. Can you repeat that, that last point? Yes. Yeah, so the, yeah. one group, so they're saying here, the, uh, about the Islamization has elevated the status of three groups of Islamic actors who have shared negative attitudes towards intellectuals and the bourgeoisie. Right. One group is the ulama who are trained in madrasas or their more modernized equivalents in Islamic disciplines, including jurisprudence, hadith and Quran exegesis. Another group is the Islamists who, who engage in electoral or other types of politics through political parties and movements. The third group is the Sufi sheikhs, who are mystical and social leaders of um, so Sufi orders, tariqas. So they're saying that they have emerged um, due to the Islamization of societies and in opposition to the secularization, secularization of Muslim societies. Hmm. That those three categories have arisen because of that. Yes, yeah, I think I think um, uh, you know those. I, I don't agree with that premise in the sense that those categories really have been around for so long, especially, uh, well, especially the 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 first and the and the third category, meaning the ulama, the scholars, and their relationship in in you know since since the time of the Sahaba, and then. The third category, the Sufi tariqa, you know, whenever some of those turq, some of those ways began to, you know, I don't know enough about the history of when those, so that came much later. So perhaps those last two categories came 
much latter, you know, and especially as far as the Islamist or politicalized Islam or what have you, I think that's a phenomenon, as they said, as a kind of a reaction to the secular state and probably the general uh, movements of democracy around the world, you know, of, of de democratization of many different societies. And Muslim societies fell in all those same camps in as far as the Cold War. You know, Muslim societies were co-opted and they were involved in that. Um, and uh, so so anyhow, those categories have have, you know, they all have a distinct history. But the ulama have been since since the beginning. That's right. That, and we would look at that as we yeah. move in, as I said, from the more broader um, uh, context of what I'm discussion, discussing. No. Sorry. I want to continue with um, where he hones in. Um, this author um, continues and it, this becomes even more interesting. Mm -hmm. He mentions here these Islamic actors have also had a common anti-intellectual attitude. Mm -hmm. This attitude follows the ulama's epistemology which is based on four hierarchical sources, the Quran, Hadiths, consensus of the ulama, Ijma, mm. and analogical reasoning, Qiyas. No. Now, this is quite disparaging and critical what he's saying, and he continues, and we need mm. to, I want to bring this out there because this narrative exists again, and others adhere to and hold this, and it's a very dangerous understanding to have. Mm. He mentions, Two characteristics of this epistemology discourage new interpretations of Islam, particularly by Muslim intellectuals. Mm. First, it restricts reason to making analogy, an analogies on points where the literal meanings of the Quran and Hadith offer no clear ruling and where there is a lack of consensus among the scholars. Mm. Second, and relatedly, it establishes the consensus of the ulama as an entrenched authority which weakens alternative views. Now, we've heard this narrative through the ages and continuing now. But here, I think we need to look at this first statement. These Islamic actors, meaning the ulama and the Sufi scholars and the, uh, the Islamists, have um, an anti-intellectual attitude. Now, Khalid, hmm. Hmm. we can refute that. And by virtue, we are not scholars in the Eastern sense of the word, but the fact that we have these intellectual discussions in and of itself between ourselves, hmm. I believe refutes that particular premise. Hmm. As layman, yourself, a student of knowledge, um, if we, in the Western um, uh, vocabulary we're considered as scholars because of our PhDs, then so be it. But in an Eastern context, this is um, being referred to, this particular statement. Now, while that can be easily refuted with regards to the intellectual um, capacity of discussions among the ulama, mm. there has been, in a more contemporary, Western, specific context, and I will say amongst Salafi um, entities, mm. a dumbing down that the deen is simple, Quran, Sunnah, Hadith, Faham, Salaf, which is true. But you'll see that those who have never given any scholarly, academic rigor to anything in any aspect of their life, and I'm not saying that you need to, 
but this dean is lofty. They've come to it with this very basic premise and on that basis, either being elevated through the ranks or elevating themselves through the ranks among their peers because of their knowledge or ability to quote ayats of Quran and hadith and scholars in that instance. So that anti-intellectual allegation has some validity as it relates to the lay person and those within a Western socio-religious context in what we've seen played out over the West, America, UK particularly, over the last 20 or so years. What, what would you say? We can continue with the rest of what they're saying, this narration and narrative is saying, but this anti-intellectual attitude, yes, we can refute it from one point, but there has to be an acknowledgement that there's an element of validity to that statement based on what I've just said. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it comes down to a matter of terms to a degree in that for the, the premise and kind of paradigm of that author and many others is that, hey, it's all open. This is what intellectual reasoning and intellectual discourse and intellectual um discussion and so forth it, you know so for them it's like hey you need to be broader in your akita even your creed you know everything's on the table so in that light he's absolutely right that no we don't care about your concepts of intellectual discourse and this and that and the other if we go back to the rudimentary understanding of Islam and, and, and the messenger of the religion, the, the origins of the religion, as you mentioned, Quran, Sunnah, uh, Ijma, you know, the consensus, and the Qiyas, As-Sahih, uh, sound analogy. Yes, that's it. How did the Sahaba, understand? They understood simply that, hey, there's some beautiful statements, I think, of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu ta'ala where he said something like, Iqtisad bi sunnah, afdal min, basically, fi abida. That being restrained, restraining yourself, restricting yourself. And that means that intellectual um, openness, restricting yourself to the, to the sunnah is better than having a lot of broadened interpretation and knowledge of bid'ah, of innovation. So they were very much into, because let's be real, you know, from one perspective, there's truth in that statement in that we are very confined. We're confined to revelation. We can't debate and say, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says he rose above his throne and we're going to start to debate and say, you know, as a lot of the groups of Ahl Kalam do, you know, hey, it means this, it means istola, it means this, it means this. So there, it's the rationalists who later came up with their intellectualism and their rationalism, which the 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 Salaf didn't know this. They didn't uh, they didn't practice that. It's very much a subservience. Yes, we admit we're slaves of Allah. So we can't debate the Quran and we can't debate the Sunnah, 
But does that mean that there isn't in interpretation and understanding in many details? No, it doesn't mean that. But there is an asal, an origin of returning to the more literal interpretation. Okay. So from that perspective, the, the author is correct because that's what you see with a lot of Ahl Kalam, those later groups, the Mu'tazila, the Jahamiya, the Khawarij even, uh, and, and many of those other sects unto the Ashadis and the Maturidi and the later day uh, groups and sects that they began to adopt kind of that more of a Western, uh, even though it might not be from the West as we think of it so much, but more of that, you know, the rationalism. Hey, let's philosophize about this. Let's, so we are confined to the Quran and the Sunnah, you know? So there is a, there is a truth there. And as far as what you said about those, uh, so, some individuals and so forth in their interpretations from Salafis and otherwise, that comes a lot of times with a lack of knowledge and people who are lay persons involving themselves in major issues and involving themselves in the propagation of the deen, even amongst other Muslims, you know, to, to denigrate them, to show that they're better with their limited understanding, very limited. Understanding. Let me read one quote, because this is so relevant that you mentioned this. And I just happened to have it in my PhD, this page open. Imam Fozan, he says, and he was talking about the issue because a lot of the people who criticize Salafi, Salafis, uh, from the people of Bid'ah and Desires, I mean, a lot of the other groups and sects, as well as authors like the author you read from, they claim that Salafis reject medhebs. Here's what Imam Fozan says. He says, yes, the lay person, because he was asked about following a particular medheb, you know, Han Hanafi, uh, Shafi'i, Maliki, or Hanbali. He says, yes, the lay person and new student should follow one of the four medhebs. That's what Imam Fozan, who's a leading Salafi scholar in contemporary Saudi Arabia, because the layperson follows the medheb of the scholar who makes fatwa on his behalf. Therefore, he should choose to follow someone whose knowledge and religion he trusts and take knowledge from him because the layperson is ignorant. That's the reality. Okay. Uh, as for a person who possesses knowledge and wisdom, then he should only follow that which he believes to be in accordance with the strongest evidence. So that's very beautiful because the lay person does not have, and I know people don't like to hear that. They want to say, hey, I, yes, I'm a Muslim. And if I want to be a supporter of Black Lives Matter, hey, I'm a Muslim. If I want to say transgenderism is okay and I want to shake hands and dance with them and, you know, everybody wants to have their opinion. But Islam does not allow that. That's Islam. That's from the book in the Sunnah of the Prophet وسلم, and the Madhab of the Salaf, meaning the Sahaba So the layperson does not have a role in making ijtihad. You know, they don't have a role. They can't say, you know, well, this is a new issue. I think, you know, I, I'll consider myself a traveler today. Actually, it was asked to me yesterday, a brother. He said, you know, and this is in in prison. He said, I, he said, you know, I was told that we are prisoners. So we pray as travelers. I said, no, that's absolutely wrong. And, you know, and, and we had our discussion, but he wasn't making that itch to had, but someone else gave him that incorrect understanding. But my point is, is a lot of people, they pick and choose. 
you know, even certain individuals, you know, because of their lack of knowledge, will say all kind of outrageous and outlandish things about the the soul of the religion, you know, you know, things from either in creed or in basic practice of fiqh of related to salat. Well, you know, I don't need to make wudu. I made wudu this morning, even though I broke my wudu. I don't need to make wudu. Well, that's his very misguided viewpoint because he is so affected by these this ideology of that you know philosophy and determining your own deen but that goes against what ahlus sunnah adheres to and that's going back to the book in the sunnah because the prophet sallallahu said la yaqbal allah la yaqbal allah salata hatta hatta yatawadu. allah doesn't accept the prayer of any one of you who makes hadith who you know passes gas urinates what have you until he makes wudu so we follow the nas the text so we're not so liberal where we can just say, hey, let's disregard that text. That was back then. Now we have soap. Now we have uh, uh, vinegar and we have such excellent cleaners. You do it one time, you're good for the whole day and just pray as you want. Pray in the bathroom, hmm. pray. No, and this is real. This is very real. But very, very pertinent points and very relevant. And as Sister Rosina said, the laymen are too confident today in their ignorance. Jazakallah for, for that, Sister um, Rosina. And there is a difference between laymen and scholarship. However, coming back to that point, as before we move on to, to the, yeah. the next st stage of the discussion, Islam and the Sunnah are not anti-intellect. We have ayats throughout the Quran where Allah says, uh, do not you uh, think... Uh, 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 do you not have sense? Yeah. Okay. Which is speaking and appealing to the intellect concerning the creation of Allah, subhanahu, uh, um, alhamdulillah, subhanak. So, the, but again, everything you've said is, is in its context and is absolutely correct. But we cannot neglect that you have got those who have come to the deen, who are upon the deen, and they may take what you've said as a justification for remaining ignorant and you can remain ignorant while quoting hadith while quoting quran while giving fatawa on people because you believe that you're quoting for a scholar and everything and become very um, haughty in that that has happened and these individuals do not apply or do not appear to apply any thought or depth to what has been revealed because we are to uh, to hear and obey mm. but we saw the muslim ummah spread at the time of the prophet we saw intellect being applied but within the parameters of the revelation we saw new challenges emerge and intellect was applied with regard so the, this um, narrator, the narration here, the, the, the narrative here is wrong when it says it's limited to kias, it's limited to this, it's limited to that. You and I will agree, as many of our um, audience will, and all Muslims should agree, with the exception to maybe some progressives and the very liberal Muslims at, at that, that these are not limitations. These are actually expansions beyond the realm of the finite Quran is the speech of Allah hadith authentic hadith is part of the revelation this is beyond the finite so it's not anti-intellectual 
um, in that instance. But it challenges the intellect to be geared towards what the fitra is upon with guidance. So I agree. I think we're in agreement on, on what you've said there. But there is anti-intellectualism. Um, no. That's not a thing that we can say and subscribe to with what this um, uh, narrator has placed here. But there is some validity that there are those in their ignorance who believe that shunning intellect completely, bringing some of the, the narratives that you've brought, is the status quo of the dean. And it's not. We, we have to be very clear on that. It's not. But it's neither the other end of the spectrum, which you've elucidated upon so well. And so looking here at what he says about the four hierarchical sources and that they discourage new interpretations of Islam. Absolutely. Islam is not to be reinterpreted. We have the ayat in Surah Ma'idah where Allah tells us this day I have perfected um, your, the religion upon you and chosen Islam. So there is no room for new interpretation. So this, this is an easily refutable aspect. And he refers uh, particularly by Muslim intellectuals. Absolutely, that door shut for them. That door is absolutely shut for them, bringing the ayat that I've just mentioned um, and, and the discussion that you've just had there. It says restrictions to reason and making analogies. Yes, that's correct, based on everything that you've said there. Um, where literal Quran meanings to the Quran and how these offer no clear ruling, again, and a lack of consensus amongst the scholars. Again, this is something that is contentious and debatable. So I think here, what we're looking at in this instance on the wider paradigm that we started off with is this very progressive, liberal um, approach with regards to scholasticism. Mm. I think, Khalid, if we move more inwardly now within the orthodoxy of the deen, we then have to look at the question we're saying here, contextualizing knowledge. Mm. So to what extent must we follow scholars today? What is the actual extent? And in asking that question, Khalid, because we can bring all of the evidences, which are sound, and we adhere to them, but we must look at the flip side. When do we not follow a scholar or scholars as well? That mm. needs, that's the, the default subsidiary question no. to today's topic. Yeah, <clears throat> so there's a couple of things I want to unpack real quick that you you just mentioned that need a little bit of clarification. So it's not absolute in we mentioned the 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 origin of the religion, Quran, Sunnah, Ijma, Qiyas, or you know, analogy. Uh in those areas where there is no divine text, there's absolute, as we saw in the time of the Sahaba, as you were making a point at the time of the Prophet. The Prophet ﷺ asked Mu'adh, you know, when he sent him to Yemen, that if you don't find that, then what will you do? Basically, if you don't, if you, if you find something that isn't in the Book of Allah or in the Sunnah of the Messenger of Allah Wasallam, uh, what will you do then? So then he he mentions, and, and so that is one of the evidence for ijtihad. 
So we have to distinguish that where there is no text, where there's no divine text, that we rely on the divine text as a source of guidance. And that is for the people of Ijtihad, you know, the people of great scholarship, to be able to uh, determine how to deal with those new issues and new contemporary um, uh, technology or what have you. For example, a microphone or coffee or whatever. That that required, with the advent of these techno the technology in this drink, that uh, the scholars of Islam, the people of knowledge, uh, made ijtihad out because there was nothing in the Quran or the Sunnah about coffee. So then they used those tools. And this is the thing. This is the 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 way of the Salaf and Ahlul Sunnah throughout history is they don't abandon those things because this is one of the criticisms that Yasser Qadi brought up. He, he brings up, and I have the exact quotes, but I just don't have time to find them in my research. But he was basically saying, as well as some of the other extreme Sufi, uh, contemporary Mu'tazila thinkers, as well as many disbelievers as well, that they're saying, hey, Salafis say about a Salafi solution, you know, but these are things the Salaf didn't deal with. So this is this premise is false from the get-go. So that surprised me that a guy like this who studied that tradition, the Salafi, uh, the traditions of Ahl Sunnah, very in-depth and has a you know a broad range of exposure to various types of knowledge, would say something would make such a uh, a, a um, simplistic analysis and just a, a plain shot out mistake. You know, it was, it's just crazy that he would, you know, with that kind of knowledge, you know, but it shows you, you know, we all have our shortcomings. So my point is, so what, how did I answer what he had to say? I answered it by saying, this guy is just thrown out the itch he had. Ahlul Sunnah says we deal with new uh, issues and contemporary problems by going back to certain principles that are derived from the Quran and the Sunnah and the analogy, make an analogy, the Qiyas and the 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 scholars they uh, analyze and they make their fatwa and derive their rulings based on that so that has to do with the issue of ijtihad so of course we have ijtihad in those issues where there's no clear text so that's something that need to be clarified with what you said the second point that you mentioned about uh to what extent do we follow scholars or not follow scholars <clears throat> so very briefly one of the things we we have to realize Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we know all the ayat and ahadith that the Prophet mentioned, uh, Allah said, and the Prophet extolling knowledge and the people of knowledge, that they're the people of taqwa, that they're the people raised in elevation. Allah subhanahu wa has raised the people of knowledge levels. They're levels above us. The, you know, they're the most God-fearing when they're practicing. So and then this ayat is very important. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Allah subhanahu wa says, and obey Allah and obey his messenger and those charged in authority over you. How did the Salaf explain this? And I just came across this tafsir just yesterday. I don't remember what book I was just looking, something else, and I came across it. Some of the Salaf, and I'm talking about like Sahaba and the Tabi'in in their interpretation of the you know in their tafsir like ibn abbas mm -hmm. said that that is the ulama 
that the ones charging authority over you, it's not just the most of the time we think of that as the leaders, because, you know, a lot of times our scholars use that to emphasize the leaders because it's in a refutation mm. of the tech fitties and the tech fitty ideology and what have you. But if we go back to some of the tefasir, we see that they refer to the people of knowledge, the scholars, that there is a role of obedience to the scholars. Blind obedience? No. And especially in something that contradicts the Quran and the Sunnah. The problem is, is most people don't have the tools. They can't adjudicate in those things. Yes, we're free thinking individuals and we have interesting opinions and views, but we're talking about Islam. We're not talking about our social movements. We're not talking about this and that and the other. We're talking about the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So those people who are most knowledge about that, they are the ones who make that fatawa and so forth. As far as us following, we see that from the origins of the religion that it's a very important um, foundation principle to follow those people uh, uh, of knowledge in that which is correct. So it's, it's and the scholars, they also mention about that ayat, that the first two, meaning Allah and his messenger, because Allah says, obey Allah and obey his messenger, that is called, that's uh, called ta'a muqayyid. That is, uh, or ta'a mutlaq. This is complete obedience. You don't have, you can't debate with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You can't debate with the son of the Prophet sallallahu if it's authentic. The wa'ulil amri minkum, and those charged in authority over you, that right there is muqayyid. It's restricted. What is it restricted by? It's restricted by those people in charge of you that are uh, uh, with their obedience to Allah and his messenger. So if, for example, a scholar says, alcohol, it's okay for you now because it's really, you know, there's some health benefits. There is some other things. No, you can't follow him mm -hmm. because we have clear textual evidence showing the tahrim and the severity of the sin and so forth even though he's a people a person of knowledge who may know a lot of these things you would be disobeying Allah and his messenger if you followed this person in their misguidance you know in in, in you understand yeah so you understand so there is a there's obviously a limit and that's why I said it's muqayyid it's restricted when it comes to the obedience to the rulers, when it comes to obedience to the scholars, but they both have major status in Islam. Jazakallah khair. I think, again, you've, you've uh, expounded upon... Second. Continue, I can hear. Give me one second, I, I got it. Okay, um, go you've ahead, expounded go ahead. upon that, I think, very, very um, well and, and provided clarification there. And mashallah, the response of... Um, uh, the audience has been as as always as as engaging, mashallah, as the, the discussion we're having um, in and of itself. Another thing I think that we need to consider when moving on this discussion: uh, to what extent must we follow scholars? Dr. Khalid, Brother Khalid has mentioned about obedience to the rulers, and um, the scholars are within that context of the, obeying those in authority. But let's now examine and i and i want brother khalid to address this as well whether that extends or how far that extends beyond the society of the muslims so for example that obedience to the ruler and obedience to the scholars does that extend from a muslim land whichever muslim land it is that has a predominance of scholars to 
Muslims residing in the West. How is that applicable? Do we follow scholars in so far as it relates to areas of Aqidah, in which some of us would say there's an obligation, as long as it's calling to the Sahih, authentic usul. What about in areas of fiqh, the furu? So there's two points that I'm, I'm, I'm raising here, Brother Khalid, mm. Dr. Khalid. The ayat that you've bought, relevant even today. But for a scholar sitting in the Middle East, for example, or in Asia, or in an African country that is predominantly Muslim, governed by Islam, those in the West, what obligation or to what extent should they adhere to those scholars? Mm. And is there an obligation upon them, as in the ayah that has been mentioned? And that, that's, there's a question there, a, a legitimate question, that that doesn't extend to those of us who are in the West. Because if someone says to us now, obedience to the rulers in a Muslim um, predominant land, mm. where is the evidence for that? There is none. And it doesn't extend to that from, from what I understand. Some hold themselves to, to um, uh, affiliate to particular Muslim societies and say, yes, this is the, the Amir of the, the Mu'mineen. When those leaders themselves don't hold themselves to be that whatsoever. And then if we hold that and extend that, this is where I want to unpack this now. Mm. If there's a, a claim that, yes, the leader of a Muslim society is responsible for all of the Muslims, even those in the West, then we have to look at that dichotomy and that polarisation of extremism because you had Daesh saying the same thing with uh, uh, with Baghdadi. Yeah. So, to what extent does that ayat apply to those outside the jurisdiction of a Muslim society? Jameel, beautiful question. <laughs> beautiful question. For, for Firstly, we, gotta dis we have to distinguish between the leader and the scholar in that sense. Okay, so the religious leader, because we don't have a, a unified leadership, a Khalifa, as you will, then, you know, we have many Muslim states and so forth. The people of that locality of those states have their bayah to their leader. So the, the, the people in Indonesia, they have bayah to their Muslim ruler in the president of Indonesia, so to speak, or in Pakistan, they have it to I want to say Imran Khan, but I know it's something Khan. I'm not sure if it's Imran Khan. In Afghanistan, now the Taliban are in lead leadership. So the people of Afghanistan, their obedience is to the Taliban. You know, whoever the emir or whatever of the Taliban is. Saudi Arabia to, uh, to King Salman. So us as Western country in the, in the West, we don't have that leadership. But it is upon us. So this is where some of the calls for hijra, you know, and some of the drive for, you know, making, uh, uh, um, you know, traveling to a Muslim land and residing there. Also, the argument 
of uh, also as as some of the imams have mentioned, like Imam Fozan, because we do have we should have some structures of leadership in even in our as as Muslim minorities, because these are kind of contemporary issues that have become so widespread. It's become you know massive amounts of Muslims in non-Muslim living as Muslim minorities where you didn't have that before. So they in their societies need a structure of uh, of leadership, someone to represent, someone to, you know, we have it on the micro level. We have imams of masajid, we have communities. We follow that, the sighting of the moon, and we see all the chaos because we don't have unified leadership in that as far as when we're going to fast, when we're going to break our fast for Ramadan and things like this. So there should be some framework and it's not going to be to the same extent as a pure Muslim ruler that will uh, that will have um, uh, that kind of same authority, the 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 bayah and things like this. No, we wouldn't have that in uh, necessarily as as a Muslim minority here because we can't protect our community and the other conditions for that Islamic leadership. But we have a semblance of authority. As far as where I think you're getting at, what I think you're getting at. Uh, and, and that comes to the second issue as far as scholars and our obedience to fatawa, for example, in Saudi Arabia. Say if the scholar said, no, in the UK, women cannot drive. Okay. So with the scholars where there's a bit of a difference, that if you have Muslim scholarship, you know, in those Muslim minority lands or whatever lands, then, of course, you're going to rely that's what you should be relying upon that. We don't, everyone doesn't always have to call Saudi Arabia. You know, Imam Fozan, is coffee halal or haram? Can I eat this tangerine? No, this is, this these kind of things. And that's why the beauty of, of really now with the spread of knowledge, we have a lot of students of knowledge and we have scholarship. We don't have Fozans in America in these places, but we still have scholarship. We still have people who, in the context of our society in America and in the UK and in Canada and in France, who are on the levels of scholars for that society. Okay. Maybe they, they will know the extent of their knowledge. They may not pass Fatawa. Maybe some of them do fit, pass Fatawa. That's going to be on them and their extent of knowledge. And they can refer back to the major scholars, you know, major scholars in other places where they feel comfortable. If it's in Egypt, if it's in Saudi Arabia, if it's in Yemen. This gets to another issue, which is, and we've talked about it before, and I was just talking about it yesterday on a broadcast, that when it comes to those fatwa of the scholars as well, part of making a fatwa, part of, of the scholar making a ruling. For example, if you say, hey, uh, you, as has happened to you, Sheikh Mohammed bin Hadi, we have this guy, Dr. Abdul Haq Baker, he did this, he does this. He's with these guys. He's this and that and the other. Whatever was all the accusations. A very important principle. A hukum. Ala shay. Far'in. Ala tasawwarhi. That part of making a ruling on something is that you have a good picture of what you're ruling about. And so what we've seen is a lot of abuse, unfortunately, and especially in our community amongst either Salafis with their wrong understanding or Hizbis who claim Salafia. 
you know, both. We got we have a mix. You know, you can't mm-hmm. say every individual fits in the same thing. Some people are actually they adhere to the method of the salaf, but they make mistakes in this. You know, they fell into some sort of extremism. Some of them have crossed the line. They're mubtidia. They are hisbis or they are callers to hisbia. However, you want to look at that. And the point is, is we've seen this abuse tremendously with many of our callers who've come back from studying and been classified and taken off the sunnah because individuals have had relationships with certain scholars and they're able to give them an image and say, hey, call it green. And I gave this example yesterday. He drinks alcohol in the doctor's lab. They could say this. They could say, go to one of the mashayikh, call it green. He drinks alcohol on the broadcast. We know. Sheikh, what do you say about this? And the sheikh, his duty, he should be, as is the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu the Prophet, and I just went over a hadith yesterday about this, where he made istifsar. He asked about, he asked for more details from those uh, sahaba, then he gave them the hukum. So the scholar, it's up to him not to play into the hands of the individuals. Even if he trusts them and think they're good individuals, he needs to have a good tasawwur. He needs to look at the masalih and the mufasid. You know, is this going to be a greater harm? Maybe this person is a mubtidiyah or they have some mistakes that need to be warned against. But maybe there's a greater harm by warning against this individual. So me as a scholar, as someone of hikmah and wisdom and knowledge, I should look at that. You know, and that's why it's very important to have a good image. And those scholars who maybe have more experience with dealing with Westerners or have been to the West and so forth, because... It's very important that you that a part of making a ruling is that you have a correct image. So if someone said that Khalid's drinking alcohol on the broadcast, well, they lied. And then the sheikh says, this guy Khalid Green, and then they post it on their forum and they post it all over social media. Khalid Green drinks. He's a fasik. Don't take knowledge from him. Okay. Whereas the truth was, I was just drinking coffee and it has some coconut oil in it because I like coconut oil. Has a little bit of sugar. I'm trying to cut down on the sugar. That's it. You, you understand? Not exactly it's, it's very important to 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 make a ruling based on the context of that society. And there's a whole another issue I want to. I'll mention it later that I was doing, and that's about changing fatawa. You know, I have a beautiful three volume book talking all about the the issue of ijtihad we were talking about and changing uh, changing ijtihad. For example, a scholar may have a view at one point and then he changes his it's he had. He has more knowledge about it. He's reflected upon it more, which is that intellectual reasoning, which is shows that thinking, shows that uh, looking. And he's looking at the time. He's looking at the context. He's looking at the society. He says, hey, Yemen, it's not like Seattle, Washington. So let me take a look. And I think I'm going to readjust that fatwa based on the book and the sunnah, not throwing it out in those principles, but I see that there's a greater benefit in this. And this is a part of that ijtihad. And that's a part of the, that's on the scholar to, to be able to look at. And we, we see one of our great imams, um, uh, founders of uh, one of the four madahib, uh, Imam Shafi, completely changing um, his paradigm when he left from Medina and traversed to Egypt. Um, and, and here is another, um, I would say there was an intellectual um, engagement, again, within the very rich para- parameters and paradigm of Quran was Sunnah, Ijma, yes. Qiyas, all of this. So Absolutely. I'm using the term intellect because that's what many of us on upon orthodoxy get criticized for. And then when we engage, that's from one end. And then when we engage in similar ways that we're engaging now, we have those who I feel 
I will say, my, my um, observation, who are more inclined to be saying the Quran, Sunnah, Hadith, but on a premise of ignorance, criticizing those who will have such discourse and engage with discourse that can be challenged, that can be explored, that can be researched upon. So I think everything you've, you've highlighted today, like, like previous sessions, is very, very um, in its context in that instance. But then you highlighted a very important point because this was a mistake that was being made and I think continues to be made, being made today where um, asking about, can I drink coffee? Can I eat this orange, this tangerine? Can I do such a... Some of the really minute aspects and these have become demarcations for some communities if one doesn't go back to a scholar in almost or absolutely every rudimentary detail. And we have the ayah in the Quran, which is very clear, to ask the scholars, ask the people of knowledge, if you don't know. No. And if you know in your circumstance, I know this to be permissible, halal, there's no doubt around what I'm doing here. This is within the context that I'm living in. A scholar from outside may not understand this, because it's not within their um, cultural um, context. So I'm not going to go and ask him because he will say something different. And I'm going to speak about something quite um, sensitive um, here, Khalid. Mm. I remember um, one of the scholars was asked um, about intimacy and the way... I was going to say that too. I was just thinking about they, that. Yeah, the, the, the way that um, Westerners kiss and okay. the, the manner of kissing. Mm. And what one of the scholars said, oh, this is disgusting. And no, you cannot, you cannot kiss like that. Right. So then it's like, well, hold on a minute. There's nothing wrong with what is being described here. And there may be a more conservative puckering on the lips from a, 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 a Middle Eastern perspective. Allahu alim. Um, so these sort of minutiae yes. and elements of intimacy, um, Asking scholars about these particular cultural um, practices where there's no definitive halal wal haram. We know what's haram in, in those particular parameters. This is where the extent of following and asking scholars becomes excessive. And it's the flip side of not wanting to ask the scholars anything and doing things and then bringing that narration from the Prophet Sallallahu um, the, the people uh, were destroyed for asking too many questions in the past, so we're not going to ask any questions at all. Yeah. Those two extremes are ones that we must avoid. Yes. Because there is an extent that we must adhere to the scholarly guidance that, have been, uh, that has been laid down for us contemporarily as well. And I'm talking about contemporarily because when we've seen with the takfiris, we've seen with others from within orthodoxy as well, that in ignoring contemporary scholars today and then extrapolating from the Salaf, Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah, ibn al-Qayyim al-Jawziyah, the, the Salaf, that you can then start misconstruing, willfully or otherwise, misinterpreting, willfully or otherwise, distorting, misrepresenting the statements and the words of the Salaf to your own end. And we've seen that to devastating effect across the world. 
the contemporary scholars, today's ulama, shed light and extrapolation and elucidation upon those statements of the Salaf. And this is a clear demarcation between the takfiris and Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. In the Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah have ulama that they refer to throughout the ages. They don't cut off the contemporary scholars, scholars for dollars, government stooges, such and such, and then go into the nusus of the Salaf and then give their own ta'wil and, and interpretation. So again, there is an extent that we must follow them. But there's an extent where we must stop and say, no, we know our hal, our situation in certain contexts. And if we take it to a scholar who is unfamiliar with that social context, he will give a ruling according to his context, which does not fit with the one we are within. And this has caused problems in the past because of that miscontextualization. No, uh, I agree with what, what you said. I think there, there's just a point that, uh, and I don't like framing it to what extent must we follow the scholars? Yeah, that we, the plain and simple, the short answer is we don't follow anyone in disobedience to Allah. Now you gave an example about the kissing and also I was thinking of other more common practice that we might practice in the West and which is probably common around the world now, but uh, types of sexual relations between the husband and wife that was not especially in conservative circles of the of the scholars for example let's just say it because the uh, what was said uh in the hadith of um uh imra'ata abi talha anha, she said to the prophet sallallahu she said ya rasulullah innallaha la yastahi min al-haqq fa hal al-mar'a ghusl either here at talamat so one of the Sahabiyat, she came to the Prophet and she said, O Messenger of Allah, وسلم, verily Allah is not shy about the truth. Does a woman have to take a ghuzl if she sees wetness, meaning if she had orgasm or she had a wet dream? The Prophet didn't say, Oh my gosh, you said this, you said la. He answered وسلم, by saying, If she sees moisture, then she needs to take a ghuzl. To give them the hukum shari. And that's why she said in that she phrased her question in the law la yastahim al haq. Verily, Allah does not is not shy of the truth because they mm. need to know, they need to know how to practice right. because this is a common practice. Everyone, you know, you have maturity and you you have these things. And likewise, this is a real situation that came up when we were in Hayal. I was with my our Sheikh Sheikh Said, and all the gatherings were Saudis. We didn't bring this up. It was myself and one other American Arab brother. And the Saudis, somehow they got on the the, the thing, excuse me for saying, but about oral relations, okay? And uh, the Saudis were all like, oh, that's haram. And me and the brother looked like, we're like, what? This is from our cultures? What's the big, hey, what? No, don't even ask about it. What are you guys talking about, you know? So they asked Sheikh Said. Sheikh Said gave a beautiful answer because actually what they brought up, they brought up a fetu of Bin Baz and Bin Baz said it's it's disliked. He didn't say haram. He said it's disliked because he said, what did he say? He said, because we only know, meaning from his context, from his culture, from his 
conservative values. We only know this from the animals, from the dogs. It's not a common practice for us. So Sheikh Saeed dealt with that. He said, he said, so it's not an issue. It's not haram. It's not an issue of haram. Basically, I'm giving a paraphrase of what he said. But the issue is the problem that kind of arises from these kind of scenarios is that people become used to uh, certain practices and it becomes more and more exaggerated until they can't have normal relations, you know, or wh whatever you want to call normal relations, meaning they get so extravagant. No, the only way I can, you know, as some people, they do, they can only watch, they actually watch pornography before they have relations or they, the woman, she has to come in, put her foot up here and hang down. And, you know, people have all their get, get carried that's, away. That's that was the Sheikh's point. My point with the, of mentioning this whole thing related to our discussion is that that goes back to also that principle we mentioned. Part of making a ruling on something is that you have a good thing. So if I was going to ask, and that's the beauty of studying with different scholars, scholars of Ahl Sunnah, all of them, and I respect even my scholars that I feel were wrong in this issue are wrong in a particular issue. I think the Sheikh was wrong, but that was his ijtihad. He's still getting reward from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I'm not the one who can really say he's the one mistaken, but I believe according to the evidence and according to other scholars. So I would probably ask the scholar who has more knowledge of my society and customs and who I have a better relationship so I can explain it. Sheikh, in our societies like this, Sheikh, in our society, we're used to this. Sheikh, in our society, we were... We became Muslim, many of us, and we had certain practices and certain relationships and so forth. Now in Islam, this, you know, you're going to give them that tasawwur, a tasawwur kamila, this, this good, full picture. And you're going to probably ask those scholars, you know, and that's why we have to know the scholars to follow it. They have different levels. They're not all the same on the same level of knowledge, the same level of taqwa. There are some major scholars, and that's why, like I referred to in our time, like Imam Fozan. You know, these are, and that's why they're on the panel, the Kibar Ulama, Hayat Kibar Ulama. Then we have other Mashai that we study that have a lot of knowledge. That is, he's an alim, but I don't, you know, people in the West might prop him up, but I've been to his house. I know the Sheikh and I love the Sheikh and I know a little more accurate, I feel, about his knowledge. His knowledge is there, but it's not quite there. I'm not going to put him on the level right. of a man or what have you. And I know how he has a little bit more uh, restriction in his fatawa. So it doesn't mean you're shopping and pacing for fatawa, but you want those who have the more accurate picture of your, as you said, of your how. So that's how I would prefer to frame it. Not that we're not going to take from the scholars. They got it wrong. And then we know better. Yeah, we know what it's daily life to live in the West, but we can still give that description to the scholars in those things we need to. As you right. went back to the ayat, ask the people of knowledge if you don't know. So we can go to them in those things we don't know. But if we know because we know it, either we've studied with them and we already have some tools to, to, to look at this or we have, you understand. So it's very important to, uh, so for me, I don't like to at all, uh, when it comes to the scholars of Ahl Sunnah at all, really refer to shortcomings like that you know yes they're people and they make mistakes but i would say it's his it's yeah he's looking at it from his picture so it's on you 
when you're asking these things, which we didn't have from certain individuals who would ask and, and really try to make things haram. Let's get this haram. Let's get this haram. I mean, right. even you're beginning students. When you're beginning seeking knowledge, and especially you're beginning to seek knowledge with the scholars, you kind of have this kind of thing. You go back for the summer and you start doing that kind of stuff like, well, I'm going to ask the sheikh to get this, you know, something that we might not need to not just go to the sheikh about, but maybe it's going to cause a great fitna. And I can give a lot of examples. Let me give one quick one and then I'll turn it over to you. Selling incense and oils. Well, a lot of us, when we're younger, that's how we, you know, we used to do that. We used to give dawah. We sell incense and oils on the street. Very widespread in America and a lot of communities for reverts, for certain reverts anyway, certain communities. Selling oils and incense on the street and a lot of dawah. A lot of people became Muslim that way. A lot of marriages took place because of that and all kinds of things. Okay. So if you, you, and I remember, you know, some people would try to ask scholars to try to get that. Haram. Oh, oh, you're talking to women. He's outside the such and such, but he's given so many pamphlets. He probably shouldn't be in front of the nightclub because we used to go in front of nightclubs. We used to do it everywhere, you know, and you're giving out pamphlets. But some people, they became Muslim and, and things like this. So there was that good. Now, I'm not debating whether that the halal or haram, you know, especially if you're going inside the nightclub, that's a different scenario. But the point is, is to some widespread practice that probably doesn't need and so many people's livelihood is dependent upon that. And that's a type of freedom for them and what have you to then go to try to get that cut off. So some of the people become eager to try to make those changes according to their view. Well, Sheikh so-and-so said it's haram. So Ahi, are, are you really from Ahl Sunnah? Because you do not listen to the Sheikh. You know, so people use that as a source of fitna. So we have to always be careful. We go to the scholars so we can gain knowledge and we can gain light in basira and ilm, not to cause fitna, not to break up and destroy marriages or communities and what have you. So this is something I just... No, Zatlake, I think um, as we're drawing to a conclusion, I think you, you um, elaborated on that point very well or articulated that very emphatically that we cannot be going back to the ulama to the extent that we want for what we want. That's something that's very, very important that um, I think we must take away from this. But also a question came up, a very pertinent one. Paraphrasing, unless Hassan puts it back up, why do we see, yes, why do you think that despite being around since the 90s, the Salafi community in the West haven't really produced many, in inverted commas, scholars per se, as opposed to Sufis, Diabundis, etc., despite our differences? Now, um, he further elaborates, Muslim brother, even if we don't consider Hamza Yusuf, for example, to be on a par with our scholars, he would still be considered to be a scholar and not just a student of knowledge in his own circles. Now, right. I, I would say to Muslim brother, and I'll tell you, because this is a point I wanted to elaborate upon myself, that there is an issue with intellectual, academic, socio-religious, socio-cultural development within our communities and it goes back to when i said earlier on that that narration while in part incorrect had some validity as it referred to an anti-intellectual anti-academic drive from within some sections of the salafi community and even you and i obtaining PhDs 
and uh, previous academic studies, masters, MBA, whatever, was frowned upon. I remember in the 90s, Khalid, a dumbing down, okay? We had sisters in university, brothers in university, and there was a, a narrative that came from students of knowledge and scholars who visited us. I sat with them, I was close to some of them, that no, this is haram, you shouldn't be studying in these institutions, which in effect ghettoized, already ghettoized communities even more. And okay, not frowning upon it, there was that everyone should be either selling incense for business, okay, or should be students of knowledge. And women, wives were um, subscribing to state benefits, saying they were unmarried, many children being produced. And why am I bringing this, this, this context? Because uh, Muslim Brother speaks about uh, progress with regards to scholars. Mm. I would say, as you've said in uh, previously, with both of the previous, we do have those who are considered scholars among us now, okay, who've come, some have graduated from Medina. We have, um, a, 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 to a lesser degree, bona fide students of knowledge, a number of them sound in the UK and in America. Mm -hmm. However, from a theological perspective, Salafis remain sound when it comes to combating extremism, when it comes to teaching um, and expounding upon the articles of Iman, okay? Uh, but very few, and I'm going to say this, Carlin, I put this out there, very few have moved beyond the actual teaching and um, abstract understanding of Tawheed. Very few. The few who have, like individuals like Sheikh uh, Tahir Wyatt, Hafidahullah, who've actually shown how to actualize Tawheed. And we see the effects in the communities and amongst the individuals um, who are learning the actualization of Tawheed, how to implement that in their own lives. Very important books continue to be taught and retaught but it's only stayed at, remain at a theoretical perspective because if it had become an actualized perspective, Khalid, we would see the similar changes that we saw galvanize the first community of Muslims, the Sahaba. Now, I'm not saying no change has taken place, but what we're seeing is a stagnation of sorts at an intellectual, academic socio-religious context and the frightening thing or should i say so a slight exaggeration of term the alarming or the worrying thing is that there's the perception that that stagnation is actually progress and islah or isolation from the wider society and that it's meritorious and the reason why i say that it's alarming is because you only need to look at the fruits of that and you'll see the next generation, our children have not, by and large, or to some extent, subscribed to that, and a number of them are off the dean now. So if those fruits were actualized, if Tawheed, if the Sunnah had been actualized, and not just book knowledge, by those who shun intellectual and academic development, surely the fruits 
would be that our next generation will be firmly upon the deen, firmly understanding Tawheed and its effects throughout society, let alone on their own lives. Yeah, I think uh, I might frame it a bit different, but I think I, I would say that part of the reason is actually a lack of knowledge because there was a lot of people who came out in those times in the 90s who had knowledge, had some knowledge, but there's still a big lack of knowledge because there's whole aspects of knowledge that they were not implementing. For example, the emphasis on manners and good good manners. The Prophet There isn't a thing that weighs heavier on the scale of a believer than good manners. There's so many ahadith, so many chapters, so many books of the Salaf written about manners and adab, okay? And the adab of seeking knowledge. But we had individuals coming, and there's a lot who weren't graduates. They studied a little bit in Yemen. They studied a little bit here. They studied a little bit there. And then they came back and they emphasized certain things. And this is what the communities were raised upon instead of being raised upon the the, the purity of the deen and the type of tarbiya. So I think it's a lack of tarbiya. Getting to the issue that the person mentioned about Hamza Yusuf and so forth. I think part of that issue is that also, as far as in Salafi communities in the West, we have been very afraid of using the term scholar outside of the context of uh, our scholars in Saudi Arabia and Yemen and perhaps Egypt and different places that a lot of the brothers who were introduced to the Dawah studied in those places. So they didn't, and rightfully so, there should be some hesitation, I think, to just call anybody a scholar. But whereas those other communities, they're not bound by the same, they have their own rule set, their own thing. A guy studies, studies for five, 10 years, he's a scholar to them. He comes back and he may have some knowledge, but he's also on a lot of batil, a lot of falsehood and shirkiyat, some of those guys. In fact, I can remember one who's a big uh, teacher in Hamza Yusuf's thing in his Zaytuna Institute, who's a big sheikh now. And I remember when he was, when, when I was in Berkeley, California, and as a new Muslim, and he was, uh, you know, I met him on the block. He was selling incense and oils, and now he's a big sheikh, and he's a big Sufi sheikh. My point is, is they have a different criterion for establishing that people are scholars and, and what have you, you know, and they study different sciences, really. They emphasize the language a lot. They emphasize, you know, so the Arabic language, and they emphasize, uh, you know, they study philosophy, but they emphasize a lot of issues of tarbiya. You know, they have their own thing. And the and the and kalam, they emphasize the the arguments of the people of the Mu'tazila, the Asha'ira, because they're Ashiris, a lot of them, Matridiya and stuff like this. They study those things, but a lot of things in Aqidah, just as far as basic usul, they are, I would say, very much lacking because they they skip what the Salaf were upon and they make ta'wil and change it and all the bid'ah that comes with that. But aside from that, they have a different way of classifying scholars, whereas we might have brothers who studied many years and the people are still hesitant. For example, as you said, Sheikh Tahir and there's Sheikh uh, Farouk, uh, Sheikh, um, well, um, uh, Uthman Farouk, there's Sheikh uh, Farouk uh, um, uh, in, uh, I forgot, he, he has his PhD from um, uh from Umul Qura, and then we've got all kind of brothers who did their, you know, they have, and as he said, yeah, they have their own Dara Ulums, which have a level of 
immense study. Whereas we go out and we study here, we study that and blah, 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 blah. We, we have a different way and a different way of studying. If there was an established leadership, perhaps we would have our own daughter looms, for example, up and down the country, which would help in addressing the lack of scholarship. Yeah, I, I don't know if that, because we do have a series of places like uh, Yemen uh, and and Al, but the thing is, is they're free, they're more free flowing, meaning it's not a, it was an established program most of the time in, in Damaj in those places. You developed your own program. So if you stop studying this book, well, that's on you. You went to another daughter. So there wasn't, daughter Ulum is definitely a, an organized, um, an organized, um, program, if you will. But we have the universities. We have Jema Islamiyah. We have those. So we do have programs where the brothers do their scholarship and other places where they graduate. So we have all of those things, but there's just a different emphasis in the way uh, in determining scholarship. Because for them, look at all in the UK, in, the, in Canada, in America, you have all these people. Everyone's a mufti. Everyone who comes out of Dar Alum, he's a mufti. So he's qualified to give fatwa. Really? These young guys. Come we, so they... That's a whole nother very, very good point, Khalid. Sorry, my keep shaking my camera. He very didn't good understand point. Bukhari and Muslim, but he went through the hadith and he memorized but Khalid, but haven't Salafis have fallen into this as well? Because as you yeah. see now, we've got individuals calling themselves sheikhs, and they've not done half of what your brothers like yourself and others have done. And their followers, unfortunately, are holding them up to be sheikhs in that instance there. And they are not, they are unqualified. But There's as Muslim brother is highlighting, yeah. as he's highlighting. If there had been a more uniform leadership that was respected, and once upon a time there was that, despite problems. I saw it in Brixton, I saw it in other areas, I saw it in America. But unfortunately, um, these were disintegrated by going to outside um, uh, scholars to talk about the affairs and the leadership structures within the UK. And... This wasn't a prop. This was a problem. And many of us did it. We even did it. Okay, uh, it became a problem because it was not for scholars from outside to be nominating. Alhamdulillah, that didn't happen in Brixton, but it happened in other places to be nominating leadership within other societies from where they were, were where the scholars had no knowledge or understanding of what was taking place in those societies, except by those who were bringing the nar narratives to them. But what I would say, Khalid, in concluding, I think it's a very important thing to, to show the position of the scholars. And uh, we know the, 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 the Sanad and, and in this instance, and um, one of the brothers who's just, just completing his PhD, he did a, um, a chart, a line of scholars that, uh, who learned via Ahl Hadith in India. Mm. And I want to, to mention this to show the weight of the scholars and how we cannot belittle them. And also, speaking back to Muslim brothers, very good questions and input, mashallah, just like the rest of our brothers and sisters, alhamdulillah, regarding leadership, regarding had we um, established our own scholars within uh, Western contexts who were connected to the ulama across the Muslim world, would we be in the position that we're in today? Okay. And I think what, what I've seen here, so for example, uh, at the top of this tree is Nadir Hussein. Dilawi. Then you've got four beneath him in the chain there Al Mubarak Papuri, Saad Al Atik, Ishaq Abdurrahman Al Sheikh, Al Mu'ma Ali. Then you've got another four coming down from these scholars, various lines and everything. Walid Muslim Jasmine, Ibn Ragib, 
Al-Tabakh, Muhammad ibn Ibrahim al-Sheikh, Ibrahim Abdul Latif al-Sheikh, Abdurrahman al-Sa'adi. And then at the bottom line, we see coming down from this illustrious chain, Sheikh Nasruddin al-Albani. Then we've got Taqiyuddin al-Hilali, Sheikh Abdulaziz bin Baz, Muhammad ibn Saleh al-Uthaymin. When we see this chain, we can't match or equate to the worth of these scholars. But coming back to Muslim Brothers' point, had we had some sort of connection and chain, as we have with uh, Sheikh Tahir Wyatt, and we go back to the, some of the ulama in Medina, who give that sanad, had that been established, then more validity and authenticity and respect would have been afforded to a scholarly, with a small s, development amongst graduates, amongst students in the West, who would have kept that connection and provided that context to the scholars so that the extent to which we refer to them could have been better contextualized. Let me know what you think on that, Khalid, and then we can conclude on that point. Yeah, I don't think it's all so necessary. But I think it's what's more important is that it just needs to be a necessary level of scholarship, meaning that everyone should know their level. Because we've had a lot of brothers, alhamdulillah, who studied all over the place. I mean, I know brothers personally that studied in with, uh, you know, in Yemen for twenty years. Okay, some of my colleagues and some others, and studied in Damaj 15, 16 years. Not the one and two year ones who come back, but you know, some of those guys, and you know, they put in years with the scholars, and they have that type of scholarship, and they're doing dawah. So I, I think the main thing, I think it's more important instead of all of these technical things and that we have to have a jama'at to salafia here and the jama'at to salafia there because some a lot of times, sometimes that breeds hezbiya. Sometimes it breeds it. That we don't need that. We do need to cooperate. We do need institutions. And I think we're slowly beginning to do that. That's why I have this thing on. When I launch my Athari Merkis al Athari, Athari Institute, this will be here. You know, it's online predominantly, but it may be also on the ground and, you know, other things that I want to do in the future. But you have many in the UK, you have several, uh, you know, the things that uh, Abdurrahman Hassan has his, a, whatever it's called. And then you have um, the brother Dawa man. He has Abdul Wahid Medina College. Abdul Wahid Medina College. You have also uh, um, Maawiya Taka. We've got Maawiya's Maawiya's Institute in his local. So you have local efforts, and you have some that are bigger. Also, the organization I did all of Beluga Maram with um, Medina College out of the UK. Okay, and all those many myself and some of those some of the other Mashaikh there in the UK and students of knowledge the knowledge college yeah so there are a lot of efforts that are beginning out there to at least give people a grounding in their religion and then there will be those from there who will probably go on to study maybe overseas and study with great scholars and 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 other institutions and that's wonderful 
to be a means for that. So we, we do have those things um, in their more infant stages that are teaching the Aqidah of Ahl Sunnah. Uh, a problem also is there's a problem of resources. There's a problem of many things. But anyway, ta'ala, you know, it's it's a process. It's a process. But we don't need a jama'at to salafiyah and this and that and the other. We need more uh we just need more teaching and more production and more raising of communities and meeting the needs of communities and there's there's definitely a big push for this and i know a lot a lot of american duat that are doing this there are brother najib al-angelizi and, and the people he works with and sheikh um in philly philly there's a lot of brothers out there who are doing this you know who have a lot of experience in the dawah and working in the prisons and working on the street Sheikh Fahir and all those guys—they have a, a pretty decent alliance. And Muhammad Munir and 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 our our brothers at uh, the Muslim Imam Muslim Family Center. There's a lot of efforts out there that are going that are on the micro level and getting bigger because of social media. So, alhamdulillah, there's things happening. Jazakallah khair, Khalid. Um, yeah, yeah. We've got we've gone over the, as we we've usually do. Definitely. There's so much to cover. So yeah. many questions and and queries that have come up that are very pertinent, and um, brothers yeah. and sisters. Jazakallah for your patience and for your engagement with us. Um, until a fortnight, inshallah. And if we need to come back to some of the questions and points that you've raised, and we can continue that. But until then, I want to say Jazakallah once again. And Salaam Alaikum Rahmatullahi Wa Barakatuh. Wa Alaikum Salaam Rahmatullahi Wa Barakatuh.